And welcome again to the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Christopher recently spoke at the Broadband Properties Conference in Dallas and met with Andrew Cohill, president and CEO of Design9. Andrew's firm advises local communities that want to create their own next generation networks. With years in the field, Andrew has a rare, unique perspective. The two talked about some of the do's and don'ts of planning and implementing community-owned networks. Here are Andrew and Chris. Howdy, and welcome back to another episode of Community Broadband Bits. Today we're in Dallas, and I'm sitting here with Andrew Cohill of Design9. Um, we're here at the Broadband Properties uh, Conference. Andrew, uh, can you tell me a little bit about uh, what you do? Design9 uh, helps local communities uh, design and build networks, and we're, we're also beginning to operate those networks on behalf of those communities. Uh, so we'll come in, do a business plan, do the financial uh, pro formas, uh, spec out the network, uh, identify the right engineering and construction firms to actually get the network built, and then we'll help help the community operate it. When uh, you and I first met, 2008, Danville, Virginia. Um, Danville's one of your longer-term clients, I think. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about Danville? Uh, Danville's one of the, the first uh, municipal open access uh, networks in the United States. Uh, they, they were a community with uh, almost 20% unemployment at the time. And uh, uh, they saw that fiber was, was going to be key to changing the local economy. And so we helped them put together the business plan and, and the technology they needed. And, and today there's been a real revival in, in Danville. They're attracting new jobs, new high-tech companies, and they're continually to expand the, the fiber network to homes and businesses. Right, and uh, it's been about four or five months since we uh, spoke with uh, Jason Gray on this uh, on this show. So um, people who are uh, wanting to know more about Danville can go back and, and check out that show. Uh, but it's been, a, it's been maybe three or four months since you and I had a conversation um, about some of the common mistakes that communities can make. And I was really interested in, in getting you to, to speak about those. Um, can you identify uh, one common mistake that, that communities have made? Before, before I turn it over to you for that, let me just specify that um, in all of the successful networks that we've seen, um, we've seen many mistakes. Um, be, just because communities make mistakes doesn't suggest that the network has somehow failed. It's just in dealing with these very complex processes, mistakes happen along the way and they're corrected. But ideally, uh, you're not making the same mistakes that someone else has made. So I think that's the point of the show. Um, so, so let's start with, uh, with a common mistake that we've seen in the field. Uh, what, one of the, the biggest issues we see uh, is staffing. Um, some community projects overstaff, they hire too many people too soon, they don't have the revenue to support the staff, they get into financial problems. The other, uh, the other big issue we see is uh, hiring unqualified people to uh, either manage the network or, or manage the business of the network. And uh, th there's a tendency to uh, think that this is, well, this is a local community effort. We need to spend, you know, we need to hire somebody local. Right. Uh, and, and 
that's good if they're qualified and they have the right background and experience to do the work, but uh, sometimes there's a little too much focus on getting somebody local at the expense of getting somebody qualified. Okay, so let's say that I'm setting up my, a network in my community and I really want to make sure I have great customer service. It's, it's commonly a, a strong desire. Um, how do I know the right number of people to hire so I can provide that high quality of service without getting caught overstaffing? Well, it's uh, it, it's always got to start from uh, the the financial uh, pro formas and and you know a realistic budget. Uh, we we often see people uh, over get into the overstaffing situation because they've they've set very unrealistic uh, revenue expectations. So uh, you've you've got to start your staffing plan from. A, a very conservative estimate of what you think your revenue is going to be, um, and that's that's got to be the number one driver. Um, uh, you know, after you figured out what you can afford, then you've got to, as you say, you've got to look at making sure you can deliver the right quality. But uh, that sort of leads to a second problem, which is we see communities don't do good, solid financial and business planning. Um, we, we've gotten calls from networks that have been up and running for, you know, months or a year or two. And the first thing we say is, well, let's see your business plan. And, and the community goes, what? Uh, we don't have one. And so you can't even tell if you're spending the right amount on, on staffing. Mm -hmm. You know, and actually it's, it brings up an interesting point where recently um, I served uh, with um, a number of other people to help a community in the metro area, um, Prior Lake of um, south of Minneapolis, um, develop a sense of how they can build the network um, and what it would take. And uh, we came together with a plan. They had hired a consultant to help them with that plan. You were you were in the running. And uh, then after they developed a, a form of a plan and a report, then they actually put out another request and they came to you and you went over the report to give some feedback. And and how common is that for a city to get reviews from different consultants and to, to have multiple levels of review? Um, I wouldn't say it's common, but uh, I, I will say we, we do get called in from time to time to review uh, somebody else's work, and uh, uh, we're, we're always happy to help out. Right. I mean, from my perspective, I just think it, having a little extra sanity check um, makes a lot of sense, um, particularly when um, you may not have someone else locally that can provide that level of, of, uh, of uh, oversight. Um, one of the things that, that I've, I've identified previously and you brought up as we, we talked about some of the common problems is uh, over-reliance on grant funding. Um, at the, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, we focus really rigorously on the economics and trying to make sure that these things are sustainable. And I've long been, uh, I discourage communities to go after grant funding in part because we think the business model can often be made to work without grants and we worry about an over-reliance on grants. So it's, uh, it's a sentiment that, I, that we share with you, and I, I'm curious if you can ex um, share some of your experience with um, how one should work with grants and, and common pitfalls. Well, I think, you know, grants can be quite useful. Um, they can be very important for getting a project started. But it goes back to my earlier comments about a business plan. If the business plan is get a grant, and then run the network and hope good things happen, you're, you're in trouble. Um, if, if the business plan says, 
Uh, we, we're going to. We, we've got realistic yeah. revenue expectations. Um, we've got yeah, a, a basket of funding, and a grant is just one of several sources of, of funding. Then uh, you know a grant can can work out very well. But um, we see a lot of communities rush out, get a grant, spend the money, and then ask themselves, how do we run the network? And then that, that almost always leads to difficulties. One of the one of those difficulties, I think, um, comes from maybe having a business plan that's not adequate, and so you may not be tracking the right metrics. So, for a community that's trying to figure out if they have a right business plan or how to put a right business plan together, what sorts of things should they pay attention to? Well, the 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 first thing you you really need is what we we like to call an investment quality uh, financial pro forma. Um, you need an income statement, you need a balance sheet, you need a cash flow statement. It's, it's the usual stuff that accountants and, and bankers want to see from a business. Um, Puts you, the rest of us to sleep, <laughs> but it's important, right? <laughs> uh, it's, it's important stuff. Um, then you need uh, take rate uh, uh, projections, you need a, a, an operational expenses section, and you need a capital expenses section. The capital expenses section uh, is driven by your your take rate projections and tells you you know over a period of you know three or five or ten years how much money it's going to take to build the network and then of course your operational uh, expense section uh, tells you what it's going to take to to operate the network on a day to day basis. Um, we recently got called in uh, again. It was a, a community that had hired a local consultant. Uh, they were having trouble getting started. Uh, we said, "Let's see your financial statement or your your pro forma." And it was it was literally uh, about a ten cell spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. uh, didn't didn't cover uh, even a whole page. Um, our financial pro formas typically run thirty five or forty pages. And so when we go to a banker with a community and talk about lending money. Um, the bankers pay more attention because we've got the right level of detail. So once you've developed a, a good business plan and you feel comfortable with it, is that all there is to it or does it just run itself? Uh, how does one uh, deal with this uh, as the network starts to um, turn on customers and, and go through the years where you've, um, you start off by connecting customers and then you hit a point where you're sort of leveling off? Um, what, what sort of things do you have to do along the way? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, if 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 your if your new customer acquisition is leveling off, um, that there's only one of two possibilities. One is you've been extremely successful and you've, you've built out everywhere that needs to be built out. That's the good one. But what we see is a lot of communities get started and then can't can't expand. And and most startup community projects have to expand and add more customers to get into the black. And so having a plan uh, to, and, and, and so here's, here's one of the issues, particularly with open access networks we've seen is, you can't rely entirely on the service providers to do all the marketing. Mm -hmm. um, the service providers in an open access network certainly have to make their own sales, acquire their own customers, but an open access or community owned network uh, has has to take on an ongoing role for what we like to call marketing and public awareness. 
we've gone into communities where there's been a community network for three or four years, and when you do a little survey, you find out nobody even knows it exists. Mm -hmm. And right. people and are I, quite surprised. So a common situation, I think, is, is you start a network and you feel like you're doing really well because you very quickly get 10, 15, 20% of the population, and then it starts to level off because you've sort of exhausted the people who are already aware of it, they're enthusiastic about it, they've had bad experience with the incumbents, they're technologically aware. You know, that's a, a commonly a chunk of maybe 20% of the population. And you need to have a plan for connecting them first, but then penetrating beyond them, right? That's right. And that means uh, typically having the right mix of services. Um, we're, we're seeing that, you know, being able to offer some kind of TV offering is critical. The good news on TV is there's now, you know, some very interesting IPTV-based uh, offerings that are, are very competitive with cable at much lower prices. So um, you've, you've got to you've got the market awareness of the network. You've got to market awareness that we've got two or three or seven providers on the network. Mm -hmm. Here's the services. Here's how you find out about the prices, and you've got to have the right the right providers with the right services. So let's, let's end on a bit of an upbeat note, I think. Um, one, one common thing that I think some networks struggle with is, is telling others how the network should be evaluated. Uh, any network that is owned by a local government is always going to be evaluated based on whether it's being uh, a sort of a, a net drag on the budget or whether it's creating a positive revenue to feed into other programs. Uh, and so every community is always going to be evaluating their project on the basis of that. But smart communities remind the, 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 local, um, the local voters, the constituents, that uh, the network should be evaluated on a, on a variety of criteria, right? No one's building this network just to make money. It's a terrible way to just make money. They're doing it for a variety of reasons. So, so what are some of the things that a community can do to make sure a network is being evaluated properly? Well, that's, that's a tough one, Chris. Um, but but it's, it's an important issue. Um, you know, we get asked a lot, well, can you show us the ROI on a, on a network? Return on investment. Yeah, yes. return on investment. And the, the irony is, in that question, is nobody asks about, well, what's the mm -hmm. ROI on a park? Mm -hmm. What's the ROI on, on sidewalks? And to be fair, I mean, if this is a business, if, if the community or the local government is, is doing this, uh, it needs to be run in a business-like manner. You know, putting in sidewalks is an amenity, it's not a business. But at the same time, uh, you're absolutely right. There's some benefits beyond just, uh, you know, making money for the general fund. And uh, it's an education process, particularly for elected and appointed officials, so that uh, particularly they're not, they're not surprised once the network's up and running that, you know, it may take 12 or 18 months to get into the black. But we've seen a number of networks, community networks, get into the black in year one because they had the right business plan, uh, they had the right financial projections, and, you know, they identified the right CAIs, community anchors, and, and the right uh, early mix of customers mm -hmm. that generate the cash flow to cover operating expenses. Um, I'm curious if you'd be willing to identify some of those. Um, I just want to throw out there that in our experience, um, the incremental builds, I think, can, can achieve that well. But if you're bonding for a lot of money to build a full-blown fiber-to-the-home, connect-everyone-very-quickly type approach, I think often they take multiple years before they can break even. Um, so maybe can you just clarify a little bit what kind of projects fit that mold of 
being able to break even in the first year? Well, I think you said it right. It's I, I think for any community project now, the, the days of bonding for you know, 10, 20, 40 million dollars, building everywhere and then hoping you get the take rate is over. Um, you've, you, large or small project now, you've really got to take an incremental approach. You've got to identify uh, and test the marketplace, uh, split your neighborhood up into areas, make sure that you know in an area you're going to get, you're going to meet your take rate projections and you don't build until you know you're going to meet your take rate projections, um, and and what we're seeing is that's that's what works. What no no matter whether the project's large or small, you've got to do an incremental approach, and that doesn't mean you can't have a fairly high speed build out. But the days of we've we've got we've bonded or we've got our grant money, we're just going to build and and hope thing good things happen. I, I think they're over. Okay, and I think. Um, some might ob might object that the idea that those days ever existed. I think a, a lot of the communities that we know of, they have um, taken um, greater care after those days. So we don't, I don't think you're. I think you're making a very good point that communities have to be more careful um, without suggesting that, that the existing networks were somehow reckless, right? Oh, right. And and you know that's true. Uh, the, the 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 good news is, is a lot of community projects as you you started off. Uh, they've made some mistakes. Most of them have recovered mm -hmm. and are doing very well uh, now or, or are doing better. And, you know, the rest of us are learning from those, those early pioneers. Right. Thank you so much for joining us for Community Broadband Bits podcast. Uh, it's, it's really helpful having someone who's worked with so many different networks to offer uh, these thoughts on uh, how they can learn from each other. Thanks, Chris. That was Andrew Cohill, President and CEO of Design9, visiting with Chris in Dallas. For more on Design9, go to their website at design9.com. The firm also has a tag on muninetworks.org, where you can see projects we've discussed that use Design9. Send us your questions and comments. You can email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. Our handle on Twitter is at communitynets. This show was released on May 7, 2013. We want to thank Mount Carmel for their song, Oh Louisa Slow Blues, licensed using Creative Commons. <laughs>